Let's go on to Dr. Lobo's case. She's about 44, 45-year-old lady, premenopausal. She's had two children that are her own. She has two foster children. She presented after a surgical biopsy to me with essentially a 3.5 to 4-inch lesion in her left breast. Her breasts aren't very big. Initially, this one was biopsied, and it was ER negative, PR negative, and HER2 negative by fish. I was going to talk to her about staging and everything else, so I did some CT scans, and then I actually did a PET scan. The CT scans showed multiple pulmonary nodules, and that's what led me to do the PET scan. And actually, a sternal lesion lit up on the PET scan. The nodules didn't light up on the PET scan, so I assumed that she was metastatic disease without a biopsy. Okay. So well, she had locally advanced disease. Locally advanced disease. And imaging evidence. Did it look like these were METs in the lung? Yeah, the radiologist called it as METs. The PET is actually a PET CT, and the CT showed it matched completely with an SUV around six. Mm-hmm. So then I didn't think that there was necessary of a biopsy. Maybe we can just stop right there, actually, and ask Nancy, would you be thinking about trying to biopsy this lady somewhere else? If I could, I sure would. You know, if I was taking the medical oncology boards, I'd be biopsying her. But, you know, we're talking a lot about real life, and sometimes it's not so easy to do. But I think the diagnosis of metastatic disease is huge, even in this day and age. And so if you could possibly do it, I'd like to. But I've sat and agonized over those CT scans with those little lesions, and they say they won't do it. And <laughs> What was the reason to order the CT scan in the PET? One, because of the locally advanced, and then when the CT scan showed multiple pulmonary nodules, I wanted to see if it lit up on a PET scan, because then I would automatically know that she's not a surgical candidate, and it would save her from a surgery that's unnecessary. Can you biopsy her sternum? Was there like a lesion there you could get a needle No, into? you couldn't see the lesion. It was only that's on the, the pet. problem. It's on the CT and the PET, and they matched, so that's why. But if it's on the CT, couldn't they do a CT guided? Oh, they could have done it. Nancy, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you might think through treatment in this case and whether it would be different if you did the biopsy and it was negative. Oh, well, that is a complicated discussion, isn't it? I guess if the biopsy were positive in the sternum, for me that would be very important because I would be envisioning her as having metastatic breast cancer, and by this I mean bone metastasis. And I think that carries a pretty difficult prognosis, even you know in this day and age with some of the therapies we have available. So I would be with you that I would be looking to be more palliative in my approach and less sort of aggressive in my approach. If I felt that she didn't have metastatic disease, then I'd be working pretty hard to use multimodality therapy to maximize her treatment benefit with the hope of some kind of long-term benefit. And it sounds like that's the approach that you were also following, that kind of subsetting. I was trying to go for a neoadjuvant approach, but... What specific neoadjuvant approach, Nancy, do you think you might have utilized in her? You know, we would often, you said she's triple negative, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we would often use, if we're being very substantial about this, dose-dense chemotherapy, you know, a la memorial, something like that. Edith? Sounds reasonable, but we'll give an anthracycline taxing before surgery. What specific regimen do you think you'd likely use? We use, in this case, every two-week regimen because we can shorten the duration of administration of both types of drugs to a four-month period. And suppose the biopsy were positive? then I would not use the AC as upfront. I tend to use more combinations, but not anthracyclines upfront in the metastatic setting. So Although would, that's an option, really. What would you have likely utilized specifically? I would really look to see how many protocols we have open because I do not have a particular regimen that I use for all patients as number one choice for metastatic HER2-negative breast cancer because I think there are many options available and not one that is definitely better than others. Would you use bevacizumab? No. 
not at this time, I am supporting the conduct of the Ribbon 1 trial in the United States and also supportive of the Avado trial being conducted in Europe to really try to understand the potential role of bevacizumab as first-line therapy for metastatic breast cancer. So in patients not eligible for a protocol are using bevacizumab? No. Nancy? Only in metastatic disease. Yeah, well, we're talking about metastatic disease. We now. are. I'm the senior author on that trial, Neil. I believe it. <laughs> so if this lady's oh, yeah. biopsy had been positive... If she had metastatic disease, mm-hmm. then I might have thought about something like paclitaxel and bevacizumab, or frankly, I use a lot of capecitabine, monotherapy, and something like this. If you truly have decided that she has metastatic disease and you're palliating, that's a pretty easy therapy. Dr. Picard? Well, you know, when you see that the three receptors are negative, it's really bad news indeed. So I don't know if you trust the pathology lab entirely, but sometimes it's worthwhile to repeat that, to be entirely sure, especially with this presentation of sternal metastasis. It can happen in the triple negative, but it's a little unusual as the first site of relapse, you know, in these tumors, they tend to go more to skin, lung, liver. So I would just double check because that is also going to make a big difference if another pathologist finds hormone receptors. And I have seen that very often in my institution for patients coming for second opinions. We always repeat the biopsy because we think it's crucial for designing your strategy. And we have seen really discrepancies among pathologists. So we think we know how to measure hormone receptors, but you have to keep in mind that there is still a high rate of errors in this measurement. Nancy, what's your take on that question in terms of the incidence of false positive and false negative ERs? I think we haven't studied it very well. One of the things we learned recently in looking at the HER2 experience, where we actually have looked at it, is we're not very good at it. And my guess is it's probably the case for estrogen and progesterone receptor as well. Having said that, I guess that I didn't see her clinical presentation as out of line with her receptor status. I mean, she strikes me as a pretty reasonable person for a triple negative tumor. So I don't know that I would feel compelled to get that repeated. Just to be sure that you do not deprive this patient from mm-hmm. some potentially very interesting therapies, targeted therapies, and because now you are stuck with chemotherapy you sure for the are. entire course of the disease. Can you follow up with what happened with her? Initially, she wanted to go to alternative healing, so I asked her to go to an academic center. <laughs> and she came back in a week and said, no, I want to stay. So what I did is I gave her weekly Taxol. It's non-toxic, relatively Basically, if you wanted to do and she had a good response, you could switch. Anyway, so... So you were she, concerned about her acceptance of chemotherapy? Yeah, I'm sure if I gave her AC or something, she would have... She basically told me, if I feel bad, I'm going to leave. So I gave her weekly Taxol. And the fourth week, her right arm started to swell. She had a DVT on from the port site. So I put her on Coumadin. And then after 12 weeks of Taxol, I got repeat CAT scans. She had a PR. Okay. So then I decided, because she still has a big mass, actually the, the interesting thing, the sternal pain decreased as she went on the taxol. So I'm pretty sure it's metastatic disease. The lesions in the CT scan on the pulmonary mets did not decrease. The PR is really on her breast. So then the decision came to what can we use next. So I put her on Gemzar and taxol because she wasn't getting as good response on the primary breast mass. And her biggest concern is really to try to... She has a small breast, but 
the tumor is so big that there's a cosmetic concern. And so she keeps on asking me about resection. Mm-hmm. And originally, there's no way the surgeon could have gotten good margins, and so I didn't think that was a good idea. She's gotten one cycle. The problem is the mass has gotten now a little bigger. I can feel it. It's obvious. Edith, what would you be thinking now? I was going to say go to the healer. No. (laughs) (laughs) Transfer. (laughs) The options, as I see here, are to proceed with radiation therapy, you know, like we do in patients with locally advanced breast cancer who are not responding to systemic chemotherapy. That certainly would be one option. To deal with the cosmetic issue and the problem of continued tumor growth, if you're pretty sure that there's indeed tumor growth, she's received only one cycle of this combination, so it's really something that's a little tricky to be sure of. The question, see, this comes in now, if you proceed with just radiation therapy, Mm -hmm. I think the systemic disease is going to flare because I bet money that's uh, those are... I looked on the two CT scans and it's classic of pulmonary knot. So my question is, do you use something like... I know in Brazil there was a new adjuvant approach with using Zolota and radiation and then going, would you use that? It's used rectal cancer... The concern is if the systemic disease approaches, she's getting radiation for six weeks, sure. and I can see on three weeks of gems artaxol, she's increasing in size, then yeah. I don't think I've done her any good. So the options are to go to capecitabine, which is really the drug approved, and it's about a 20% possibility of response, or to go with that approach with radiation therapy because of her primary concerns. I think that would also be appropriate. Dr. Picard? I also think it would be reasonable, given the special history of the patient and the problem she has, to combine the two. Now, what you are telling here is very typical of basal-like cancers. You know, they have Mm -hmm. these responses which are extremely Mm -hmm. short-lived. It's a horrible disease, in fact. Nancy, I know you've used a lot of capecitabine in the past. Has that changed with the evolution of the bevacizumab data? And do you use the two together? I do not use bevacizumab in capecitabine together at all based on the trial that was done. I use my bevacizumab with my taxane. We have some anecdotal experience treating these locally advanced patients with capecitabine and radiotherapy, and it seems to be pretty well tolerated, and sometimes we thought that they were a little better. I guess the other approach I wonder about for you is whether or not she would be a candidate for doxel. Hmm. One thing I would worry about with capecitabine is you make me a little concerned about her compliance. Is she going to you know, take those pills for 14 days. One of the things I like about Doxel when I use it in this setting is it's usually pretty non-toxic and they only have to show up every three or four weeks. And, you know, adriamycin is a pretty good drug for breast cancer. You're not going to be able to radiate her simultaneously, but that might be another strategy that you could consider down the line when you're thinking about her. Steve? How about using a platinum agent or a CPT? You know, this is a triple negative and at least there's a suggestion that those drugs may be more active. I don't know that... We obviously don't know that yet, but I think there's some empiric evidence. I think platinum agents have activity in breast cancer in the range of all of the other chemotherapy drugs that we know of. It's uncertain whether there's a differential benefit based on the triple negative subset or not. We would have taken a more aggressive approach up front just for the purpose of not ultimately finding yourself in a situation with a large, fungating primary breast mass that you're never going to get control of, that you really have one opportunity from the get-go to get that down to a point that maybe you'll make it operable and then do radiation, because I think that's going to get you in trouble real soon. You know, what happens to this very large primary breast mass, and I might have just thought to take a more aggressive chemotherapy approach up front and not 
for a curative intent, obviously, but for that particular palliative situation, which I know that can be horrific when that chest wall disease is really uncontrolled. And you end up trying to do a toilet mastectomy and you can't. I guess, again, you're trying to balance the delicate balance here of this woman who doesn't want to be made sick and is not maybe being totally realistic about this. What do you think you're going to do at this point? Where I trained, we had a lot of locally advanced breast cancers. And the reality is if you don't get a complete response, a lot of them come back. And I've seen a lot of, let's say, ulcerated after a 12 mastectomy or even after a regular mastectomy, they get an ulcer. I think the Zalota is what I was going to try to do because I have used it before with the radiation and they do get a good response. The other aspect maybe to try the Doxel, I'm going to present both options to her. I've already tried to present her to see, to go to see radiation and she's hesitant on doing it. Mm. She still has the idea that surgery is a potential or she wants that idea. Although I'm not myself a believer, you know, Seema Khan, who's a very, very good breast surgeon, points out, I think, two data sets now that say that when somebody shows up with de novo stage four breast cancer, like your patient, that women who undergo some kind of excision of the primary tumor do better than women who don't. I'm always concerned about whether or not the people you send to the OR are the people that you somehow figured out they're going to do better. And so there's a selection bias. But she would think that surgical excision is not an unreasonable thing if I'm not sure it's technically feasible right now as you describe the patient. Nancy, I want to go back to the issue of first-line therapy of metastatic disease. Let's say in a patient who hasn't had a taxane, how do you then decide between using capecitabine, which you use without bevacizumab, and a taxane, perhaps with bevacizumab? Well, I'm not completely evidence-based here, Neil, but these are usually people who've already had some adjuvant chemotherapy frequently they've already had a lot of adjuvant taxane, sometimes we might start with capecitabine in a non-trial setting because it's a kind of easy transition into the setting of long-term therapy for metastatic breast cancer. And then we might come back and give the taxane at a later date with bevacizumab. Other cases, patients don't want to take the pills. So I usually give them a choice because I kind of know I'm going to end up giving both agents and it's almost, in the end, a question of sequence. Which one first? How do you approach that situation, Edith? And what about the choice of taxane? We have been using a lot of paclitaxel once every three weeks. We have been using some carboplatin, mainly in combination with other drugs. And we're very intrigued with the nanoparticle of human-bound paclitaxel data because of the lack of need for dexamethasone therapy, corticosteroids, and other pre-medications. Plus, we have the randomized phase 3 data against the parent paclitaxel compound, and now we have this very intriguing report of the randomized phase 2 study of the three nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel arms versus docetaxel, although one needs to be a little bit cautious with the data from that study reported at San Antonio by Bill Gradishor, as more follow-up is required, and it was not a randomized phase 3, it was a randomized phase 2 study. So we are pretty flexible even with the taxane we use. Dr. Picard, what were your thoughts about that presentation at San Antonio that Bill Gratishar made showing higher response rates with the NAB compared to docetaxel? Well, I think these are interesting data. They are still perhaps a little bit preliminary. And I have no experience with this drug because we have not had an opportunity to use it in Europe. So I have no personal experience. From the data I've seen, it looks like it's a pretty active compound now. Easy to give, perhaps, but very expensive. So... At the end of the day, I don't know if it's going to make its way uh, in Europe. Nancy, what are you doing in terms of paclitaxel versus NAB in the metastatic setting? Well, I work at the Johns Hopkins Hospital where NAB is not part of the formulary. Unless a patient has had a documented hypersensitivity reaction to 
ataxane with the usual pre-medications. And thankfully, in my personal practice, I haven't run into that. But the hospital felt very strongly about cost containment, as Martine was talking about, and felt that they just couldn't justify it in the absence of some sort of proof that it was better than conventional weekly taxol. So they're not persuaded. We do patterns of care studies, and of course, that's just people's opinion. We ask them, and we've asked in the last couple survey, what's your impression in terms of efficacy of this drug versus paclitaxel? And most of them, even though maybe we'd like to see some more data, think that it's more efficacious. Do you? I don't know. I've never had the chance to use it. I'm not sure. You know, it sounds like what people are talking about is based in part on information and in part on kind of clinical experience, and I don't have the clinical experience because I haven't given the drug. How much of an advantage do you think it would be, or how much of an advantage do you think it is, Edith, to avoid the pre-medications and have the shorter infusion time? I think it's a lot more advantageous, but the problem of economics is a real one. Even at our institution at Mayo, we also had difficulty getting it in the formulary because the initial approval was going to be just that for prior hypersensitivity situations, but we went back and said there are no data of the efficacy or safety of this drug in the setting of prior hypersensitivity reactions to toxins. And that's what we use as a discussion point for our PNT committee, and eventually we got it approved. So we think it's a good drug. I wish the price was a little closer to a taxol because the benefit of the drug in terms of efficacy compared to paclitaxel is there, but it's not huge to warrant the huge difference in cost. I think if it was less costly, we would all be using this drug much more often. Dr. Cohn? Let me step back a minute. I'm interested in, given how poorly triple negatives do, what adjuvant therapy would one choose amongst the various adjuvants that we have? We are not discriminating adjuvant therapy based on the triple negative findings because we don't know of any other chemotherapy drug. If we're going to use chemotherapy, that works better in that subset of patients. There are several clinical trials that are being done. There's one with a drug called dasatinib in triple negative population. 